Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 118, and it is the third episode related to the history of the Mafia, and the fourth in our continuing series of history wanders that help to tie this all in together for us as we try to understand how the U.S. government, the CIA, the Mafia, and the Cubans all go together in one recipe. In this story, that is JFK, The Enduring Secret. You know, I probably should spend more time on titles for episodes, more time than I do. Call it what you may, I guess. I'm just not very good at it. So I figure that the juice most of the time is just not worth the squeeze. That is probably a bad hypothesis on my part, isn't it? Well, that's how I roll. But every once in a while, there is a natural for a title, and I think today's episode is one of them. We are going to call it The Great Awakening. This is a term coined by Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and previous to that was a player in the crime-fighting unit of the U.S. Department of Justice, a unit that went after these mafia chieftains. After the HSCA completed its work, Blakey was convinced that the mafia was behind the murder of the president. Afterward, he wrote his own book, along with Richard Billings, who was the HSCA's chief investigator. It was entitled, The Plot to Kill the President. The book was later re-released under another name, Fatal Hour, The Assassination of President Kennedy by Organized Crime. Professor Blakey is a leading authority on the Kennedy assassination and perhaps the foremost authority in America related to the RICO Act, which is a federal law in which he was a principal architect of, and which ultimately turned out to be the kryptonite necessary to materially dismantle the mafia's overarching influence in this country. He went on in later years to be an esteemed professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. So, today's episode is dedicated to all that he did to advance the truth. It is true that there were many shortcomings in the HSCA investigation, and we may never know exactly how the politics worked to derail some things in it, some things that seem obvious to us now. But that was then, and people then were still being threatened with their lives. This whole thing was still a lightning rod at that moment in time. So in the context of history, don't let perfect be the enemy of good here, no matter how tragic the ending was an ending that fell short of solving the crime. Nevertheless, it was the largest single advancement of the assassination investigation since the Warren Commission report, and it was surely more fuel for the hunt. Blakey's superb articulation of the Great Awakening in his own book will be borrowed on heavily today as we tell the story. It's about that time frame and the series of events in this country that finally resulted in our government for the first time truly acknowledging that there was an organized crime syndicate of epic proportions in this country, and then educating the public about it, and finally having the public at large, the vast majority of Americans then learn about the idea of this great conspiracy and ultimately accept this gigantic story as truth however initially unbelievable as it might have been. You know, if you study history, particularly the history of governments over larger periods of time, you see the patterns develop. In a democratic society, when social norms and needs are changing, usually the first step that the government takes is to investigate and educate. And this can come in many forms, 
But sometimes in government, they form a study group and spend time trying to understand the topic. They go more deeply into the details, at the same time furthering the public knowledge about the topic as the public looks on. They might then attempt to change some laws, and the laws may or may not pass the first time around, or even the second, depending on how tough or controversial the proposed law is, or how the topic has been received by various constituencies, including the public at large, as well as those that represent them in the Congress. Eventually, things happen, and the topic reaches a crescendo. There is a consensus of momentum to make change, and the administration and lawmakers make the law and engage the law enforcement of them. Suddenly, a large enough constituency of power is galvanized in order to act and to make the change. Characteristics of this method of social progression are quite apparent when it comes to studying how the government eventually dealt with the mafia. That is the story that we will tell today, the story of the Great Awakening. Before we get into more of the details, let's outline what I believe to be the key events that make up the Great Awakening. And there really are only a handful of them. By the time World War II had ended, there was already a feeling in some circles that there was more to this idea of a crime syndicate. By 1948, Earl Warren, who was then the governor of California, impaneled a commission on crime in that state. And that propelled what came next, which is the Kefauver Committee, named for its creator, Estes Kefauver, a U.S. senator, whose hearings took place in 1950. These hearings were the first widespread government affirmation that something much bigger was there underneath the covers. But still, the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover continued to deny the existence of this vast criminal conspiracy until one day in 1957, when the second event occurred. Too many of those good fellows gathered from all over the United States in an event known as the Appalachian Meeting. The events happened to catch the eye of local law enforcement, and the threat of conspiracy was identified and tugged on. What unraveled is a great story. All in all, the tangle of events around the Appalachian meeting were a giant leap forward in the Great Awakening. But the next two events that I believe are the rest of the underpinnings of the Great Awakening would begin to make the whole thing really unravel for the Mafia, and they most assuredly became part of the story that is JFK, The Enduring Secret. The first of these two events was Robert Kennedy and his aggressive pursuit of the bad boys while he was chief counsel for the McClellan Committee. We all remember the gloves-off, no-holds-barred treatment by Robert Kennedy of Jimmy Hoffa in those meetings. Men like Carlos Marcello got similarly tough treatment. It would be a factor later in assessing the mafia's possible motives in the killing of the president. Lastly, the crown jewel of it all was the testimony of Joe Valachi at the ongoing McClellan hearings in October 1963. He revealed on television for the entire nation to see and to hear an Italian who was right from the inner circle of the core of the mafia's top brass, a member who had finally violated Omerta. And he was credible, even though he was a criminal. Finally, oh, finally, the story of a prick of the hand and the exchange of blood in a secret ceremony with ancient origins, but with implications to this world 
and under punishment of death if the loyalty to which it ascribed was not strictly given and adhered to. The U.S. government had come of age and had a witness protection program now, part of the slow but sure development of weapons to fight the secret war that the Italians had been engaged in for centuries. Maybe there should be one final contributor that should be given credit beyond the ones I have just paid tribute to, and that really is the shifting of the tectonic plates to the electronic age. Television and the mass media had its place here in spreading the word faster than ever before about what was changing and what the country was collectively seeing, absorbing, and reacting to. Watching Joe Valachi deliver his testimony was even more dramatic than just hearing his voice. He was the quintessential Italian in all ways to play the part on the national screen at that moment in our nation's consciousness. Almost like Grandpa revealing the truth, he was hard not to embrace, despite the sobering seriousness of the topic at hand. Men of power and men of this persuasion usually don't go down without a fight, and these men stayed in the ring, these bad boys in the background. Tragically, they stayed in long enough to turn the fight against the Kennedys. But that is for another episode. Right now, let's tell the rest of the story of these main events related to the Great Awakening. So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of episode 118 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. The year was 1950, and the Attorney General of the United States was J. Howard McGrath. In February of that year, McGrath called on law enforcement officials from all over the nation to meet in Washington at an event that was dubbed the Conference on Organized Crime. The group was particularly focused on the expansion of professional gambling. The mayor of New Orleans was Delesseps S. Morrison, and he made a passionate plea at the conference about the topic. And here's what he said. We do not have the whole picture, but each of us present and hundreds of others have seen small segments of this national scene of organized crime. These pieces fit together in a pattern of mounting evidence concerning several highly organized syndicates whose wealth, power, scope of operations, and influence have recently grown to alarming proportions. There were, of course, others at the conference that agreed with the mayor's view, including in an appropriate element of irony, Will Wilson, who was then a district attorney from Dallas. He would point to the fact that slot machines and punch boards had come to Dallas via Chicago. We now know Jack Ruby came in 1947 as part of the Chicago plan to do just that. Wilson would go on to tell a sobering story of the killing that was going on related to these activities including one circumstance where there was an attempt to kill a policeman by wiring a bomb to his car. 
but it killed the policeman's wife instead. Still, there were others at the conference that would continue to deny even the existence of this element in society. One of them was the U.S. attorney from Chicago, Otto Kerner. Kerner would say that no organized gambling existed in the city of Chicago and that he did not know that any syndicate existed either. He would go on to say that he read about it in the newspapers, but he never received any evidence of it. In contrast, there was the Texas Attorney General who also attended, and his name was Price Daniel, and he too was adamantly against these rapidly advancing criminal organizations. He would go on to become a U.S. Senator who would contribute to the passage of tougher narcotics laws in 1956, which resulted in the convictions of several important syndicate members. Our friend Otto Kerner from Chicago, on the other hand, went on to become the governor of Illinois in 1960 and then a circuit court judge in 1968. But fast forward to 1973, and he was convicted of accepting a $150,000 bribe from horse racing interests. Imagine that. Well, the 1950 Conference on Organized Crime was a big step forward, but there was more to be done. And out of the conference came numerous recommendations, the most important of which was for a Senate investigation of organized crime. The politics of investigation went into gear, and that recommendation was blocked by the then Attorney General of the United States, J. Howard McGrath. Despite that recommendation dying on the vine, well, regardless of that, there already was a resolution in the U.S. Senate authorizing a select Senate committee to probe organized crime, and it was pending at the time of the conference. That bill was under the sponsorship of Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee. As I mentioned earlier, Kefauver had been concerned after what he had learned through the 1948 study by the Crime Commission that was appointed by California Governor Earl Warren and as a result, Kefauver introduced Senate Resolution 202 on January 5, 1950. It was a request to undertake a wide-ranging examination of organized crime in the United States. Even though the recent events, including the conference, seemed to give momentum to passage of the resolution, at that moment, it was a piece of legislation that was not assured. As Professor Blakey points out in his book, Democrats feared that too much light would be shed on alliances of gangsters and big city political machines, political machines that their party, the Democrats, dominated. And as for the Republicans, on the other hand, well, they expected nothing more than a whitewash. Kefauver, in later years, would comment and say, I look back on the struggle to get the committee authorized, and I sometimes wonder how we were ever able to bring it into existence but he did. Although, not before the closest of votes in the Senate, it actually took a tie-breaking vote by U.S. Vice President Alvin Barkley to bring the Senate Special Committee to investigate organized crime and interstate commerce, that's the long name, or the Kefauver Committee, into existence. This committee was not broadly looking at crime. It was focused on the concept of organized crime. Kefauver wanted answers to certain basic questions. Did a nationwide crime syndicate exist? If so, where did its sources of power lie? To what degree had it purchased the cooperation of local governments? At first, many of those watching closely thought the committee hearings would go nowhere and that his investigation would not receive much in the way of attention. 
These folks, Blakey points out, could not have been more wrong. The nation paid careful attention and Kefauver almost became president. The hearings themselves started in the month of May 1950, and they ran for almost a year to May of 1951. One of the unique aspects of them, and certainly Kefauver may have had a future political run in mind when he did this, well, he took to the road, and he himself traveled over 50,000 miles, and he presided over 92 days of hearings, many of which were conducted in cities all over the United States. The committee heard more than 800 witnesses in Miami, Kansas City, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Chicago, Tampa, Cleveland, Detroit, New Orleans, Las Vegas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Saratoga, New York, and finally in New York City itself. The hearings that took place in New York City were televised and they were seen by an estimated 30 million people. On the eve of these meetings, before the meetings began, there was a declaration by the Attorney General of the United States, yes, McGrath himself, that there had been no persuasive evidence yet that a national crime syndicate existed. Kefauver and his committee would proceed to show McGrath wrong and would begin to gather that evidence and they would do it in broad daylight. As I mentioned, the committee was primarily focused on professional gambling and particularly casino gambling. What they found was that casino gambling was operating throughout the country and bookmaking was equally widespread as were illegal slot machines and punch boards. The committee touched on other areas with less vigor, recognizing that these syndicates were involved in narcotics traffic and while spending less time on other topics, they still managed to comment on the use of unscrupulous and unethical business practices, extortion, bombing, and other forms of violence used by the racketeers and the inroads into legitimate business enterprises. The committee found evidence of hoodlum infiltration in approximately 50 areas of business ranging from what they termed to be A to T, or in other words, advertising to transportation. The committee went and met in Chicago on three separate occasions and found an active presence of organized crime there. Kefauver would later go on to write his own book entitled Crime in America, and in it he would say if we had gone no farther than Chicago in our quest for evidence of the link between organized crime and politics, we would have written a complete report in miniature of the picture of nationwide criminal and political corruption. One other thing to note is that the extended corruption that existed during the years that Al Capone operated his crime base in Chicago was largely hidden from the public's view when he was sent to jail on a tax conviction for tax evasion. It really deprived the public of a full view of his criminal activities that undoubtedly would have been exposed had he gone to trial for them. The committee identified other rather significant and specific elements of corruption that involved political leaders across the United States. It was eye-opening, even if some of it was history from decades past. Of significance to us here at JFK, the enduring secret is that the Kefauver Committee prepared a profile of the man it identified as the organized crime leader in New Orleans, Carlos Marcello. He was born on February 6, 1910 in Tunisia of Sicilian parents who immigrated to New Orleans later that year. His real name was 
Calogero Minacore, but it was subsequently changed to Marcella and later masculinized to Marcello. The committee found Marcello active in all phases of the rackets in New Orleans. He operated casinos, horse betting parlors, and slot machines. Marcello was also involved in narcotics trafficking. In addition, he had invested heavily in legitimate businesses, including bars, restaurants, and food processing companies. Marcello's nationwide criminal contacts included Frank Costello of New York, Joe Savello of Dallas, Sam Harris of Chicago, and Mickey Cohen of Los Angeles. Marcello's New Orleans organization was also found by the Kefauver Committee to have supplied the weapon for a mafia murder in Tampa, Florida, where Santo Traficante had been the reputed mafia leader for more than 20 years. Again, uh, just a little tidbit of connection to the JFK assassination story. The New York hearings personalized the alliance of crime and politics by focusing on two men, Frank Costello, a member of the mafia, and William O'Dyer. The Kefauver Committee presented evidence that in 1942, Costello had exercised political dominance over Tammany Hall, the New York City political organization, and the evidence on Costello was unusually reliable since it had been obtained from wiretaps by Manhattan District Attorney Frank Hogan, which the committee observed gave a vivid picture of Frank Costello as a political boss and an underworld emperor. William O'Dyer, on the other hand, was a policeman from 1917 to 1924 when he left the force to practice law. He was elected to a judgeship in 1938, and in 1940 he became district attorney of Kings County, which gave him jurisdiction over the borough of Brooklyn. In that role, he conducted an important investigation of more than 20 gangland murders that had been committed in one year, with the help of one of the higher killers named Abe Rellis. O'Dyer's office identified an organization popularly known as Murder, Inc., which was headed by Albert Anastasia and staffed by Italian and Jewish gunmen. Murder, Inc. was responsible for numerous killings in New York and elsewhere, but on November 12, 1941, before an indictment could be returned against Anastasia, Rellis plunged to his death from the bedroom of his suite on the sixth floor of the Coney Island Half Moon Hotel even though he was under police protection. According to the Kefauver Committee, it was doubtful that O'Dyer ever intended to seek an indictment of Anastasia, who continued to maintain a stranglehold on the Brooklyn waterfront through control of a local of the International Longshoremen's Association. The Kefauver Committee found that the murder investigation was riddled with glaring deficiencies. Nevertheless, O'Dyer was able to turn it into political advantage, and in 1945, he was elected mayor of New York. Yet the committee concluded about O'Dyer, who was a United States ambassador to Mexico at the time of the Kefauver committee hearings, well, they concluded that a single pattern of conduct emerged from O'Dyer's official activities in regard to the gambling and waterfront rackets and the investigation of murders and police corruption from his days as district attorney through his term as mayor. And it was this. No matter what the motivation of his choice action or inaction was, it often seemed to result favorably for men suspected of being high up in the rackets. <laughs> well, there you have it. As the Kefauver committee hearings came to an end, the following would be stated by the committee and would sum up much of what had been gleaned in the year of hearings. It was as follows. 
Organized crime today is far different from what it was many years ago. New types of criminal gangs have emerged during Prohibition. Organized crime in the last 30 years has taken on new characteristics. Criminal groups today are multi-purpose and care to engage in any racket wherever there is money to be made. The Mafia has an important part in binding together into a loose association the major criminal gangs and individual hoodlums throughout the country. The domination of the Mafia is based fundamentally on muscle and murder, and they will ruthlessly eliminate anyone who stands in the way of its success. Well, this was a clear conclusion, but not as robust a conclusion about the National Crime Syndicates as some would have liked. But it was a giant leap forward, and there is absolutely no doubt that the totality of this exercise that was undertaken by the Kefauver Committee enhanced the awareness and the understanding around organized crime. And it was still early on in the game. (laughs) But of course, no good deed goes on without some level of criticism, and there is no doubt whether it be objective criticism or not. In Kefauver's case, many critics of the committee meetings saw the formation of the committee as grandstanding by Kefauver himself, and that the meetings were nothing more than a platform and a probe launched for political gain. Kefauver wanted to be president, and he wanted a venue in which he could be portrayed as a candidate that was tough on crime. President Truman, a fellow Democrat, was not happy with Kefauver and the unfavorable light that it put the current Democratic administration in. And the politics of the 52 presidential election would deny Kefauver a spot on the ticket. But he was able, in 1956, to secure the vice presidential nomination, following a down-to-the-wire roll-call contest with, wouldn't you know it, the junior senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. But in 1956, as it had in 1952, the Republicans snatched the election. Despite the controversy that came with the Kefauver Committee, there is no doubt that his involvement and leadership of it almost propelled him to the presidency. I think it's time to pause because it's getting late and I'm hungry. Yep, it's time for a sandwich. We'll tell the rest of this story in episode 119. So, stay listening. Thank you for listening to episode 118 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 